Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called Care for the Elderly, the Forgotten Minority. In the chair is Hilary Salt. Okay, so so thank you uh, for attending this session on Care for the Elderly, the, the Forgotten Minority. And, and in a, a year when the needs of the elderly, I think, have become very stark, uh, the care homes issues, uh, the difficulty of, of meeting uh, the ordinary uh, health needs of the elderly population when the NHS is stretched by, by COVID, uh, the discussion on social care costs. There's been a lot of uh, discussion around the needs of the elderly. So I think this is a really topical conversation to be having. So let me then introduce my, my panel. So uh, I'm going to go from uh, left to right, uh, and that's, this is the order they're going to speak in, uh, uh, so uh, we're all uh, clear about uh, what's happening when. So let me, uh, I'm, as I say, I'm going to give them short introductions. There's a much longer um, biography for them all on the website, which sets out all their very impressive credentials, uh, but I won't read all that out and waste our time doing that here this morning. So we're going to start with Sue Cook, uh, broadcaster. I think still most love for Crime Watch, if I'm honest. Uh, that's the one that everybody springs to mind, but lots and lots of other uh, 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 programmes to her credit, uh, and also novelist. Uh, and then we're joined by uh, Dr Shibli Rahman, and I'm, I have to really, really thank him because he's stepped in to the breach to replace our speaker who couldn't attend. Uh, so we, we give him uh, extra special thanks. Um, he's a special advisor on disability, a carer, member of the Royal College of Physicians, and, and we very much welcome him uh, to our discussion this morning. Then we've got Ed Rennie, a Catholic writer, political analyst, founding member of Catholic Voices. I know he's written very widely on lockdown and the, uh, the side effects of lockdown, uh, and we're really interested to hear uh, his view on this subject. And then finally, we're joined by John Holbrook, a barrister, writer for Spiked and The Critic, The Conservative Woman. And he's also uh, uh, you know, written very widely on legal issues uh, again in this area. So I think we've got a fantastic range of speakers. Uh, and without any more from me, I'm going to hand over to Sue to start. Thank you, Hilary. It's great to be here. It's a fantastic event I've never been to before. So buzzy and, and full of life. It's really great to be here. Um, in my opinion, lockdown restrictions have done a lot of damage this past 18 months to people of all ages and all walks of life, but in particular to the age groups that I think at either end of society, the very young and the very old. And ironically, the damage to the very old was done in the name of protecting them. And in the attempt of protecting them from COVID, many of them died miserable deaths from lack of exercise, lack of mental stimulation, lack of social contact, and basically utter joylessness. One reason I became super aware of this, I was lucky enough, and, st and still I'm lucky enough, to have a mother who's 102 years old. She lives in her own home. She looks after herself entirely, doesn't have a carer, has all the proverbial marbles, and I was, became very aware that if she'd been in a care home or she'd had some incident or accident necessitating her going into hospital, things could have been very different indeed. But she's been lucky enough to have me and my brother visiting her every week throughout the pandemic. And in doing so, we were, of course, strictly speaking, breaking the rules. 
We were risking killing Granny, as Matt Hancock so endearingly put it. But we knew that Mum would be, the, and she'd be the first to tell you, that what would certainly have killed Granny would have been letting her sit alone in the house every day with no conversation, no dates on her calendar to look forward to, nobody to eat a meal with, and nobody to even make eating worth it, just the doom-laden mainstream media for company. I think that would be enough to challenge anybody's mental health, no matter what their age, but don't get me started on the media. I was on my metal every Sunday when uh, my husband and I drove down the M40 from Oxfordshire, where we live, to London to see my mum, just in case we were stopped by the police. I was prepared to come out fighting, maybe be arrested if necessary, and I know maybe some people would disagree with my view, but for me, there was no doubt at all in my mind that visiting my mum was the right thing to do and I would defend it to the death. In fact, mum says quite frequently that she wouldn't be here today if she hadn't had my brothers and my weekly visits and I really do believe that's the case. So knowing how lucky our family was to be able to keep a reasonably normal relationship going through the pandemic, it made me realise how very unlucky so many other older people were. Either they had no family at all to visit them and there were a lot of people actually in that position, a lot of older people, or their family was sticking very closely to the rules and keeping away from them, or they were in a care home, isolated in their room for most of the time and denied virtually any company at all for months and months. And when visits were allowed, it would be to be plonked in front of a window, in front of a screen somewhere, while people you half recognised behind masks jumped up and down and waved frantically at you. They must have wondered what on earth was going on. I think it would affect anybody's mental health. And these visiting restrictions, I gather, are still going on in a lot of care homes, despite government's recommendations. They're not making it law. So a lot of care homes are continuing these restrictions with heartbreaking results. And people unlucky enough to end up in hospital during the pandemic had a terrible time too. I had some direct experience through my sister-in-law, Dee, her mum was a feisty, artistic woman in her early 90s, lived a few doors away from them, had, was developing dementia, but she was getting on fine. And then halfway through the pandemic, she had a stroke. She was blue lighted to hospital where not only were Dee and my brother refused to visit, permission to visit her, but even when they rang the ward to ask how she was and what treatment she was getting, the doctors refused to tell them in any detail because they didn't have medical power of attorney. I mean, it was just dreadful. Dee's mother must have felt totally bereft, in strange surroundings suddenly, unwell and entirely alone. After a few days there, she simply stopped eating and drinking, turned her face to the wall, and within a fortnight, she died, feeling completely abandoned and absolutely no idea why. I don't think we fully realise yet the extent to which so many older and vulnerable people were abandoned, apparently for their own good. We robbed them of any choice, any chance to decide what's best for them, as if they didn't merit a voice of their own and all for their own good. We still tend to stereotype elderly people as white-haired, frail things with walking sticks falling asleep in chairs, but that's increasingly wrong. There's no such thing now as a typical elderly person. The older population is as diverse now as any other section of, of society in terms of income, background, race, gender, mental fitness, physical fitness, and it's growing rapidly too. We've got big problems ahead of us if we don't recognize this. 
people like me, my husband, my friends and contemporaries, we're in our <laughs> early 70s now. Some of us are grandparents, have just stayed with my grandson last night. But we don't feel like we're spent forces. A lot of us would welcome, I think, higher expectations of us and our contribution to life around us. Just living, i.e. not being dead, isn't enough anymore. We need a fresh approach. And I think, I'd be very interested to know if anybody else has got views on this, but I think we need a dedicated minister for the elderly. I actually don't like the word elderly very much either. Maybe we should say a minister for the third age. The relevant minister for the elderly right now is the Minister for Care, Gillian Keegan. And that's a junior ministerial role under Sajid Javid. So she hasn't got a seat at the cabinet table. And her remit is dauntingly broad. I won't read it out to you because it will take too long, but it's very care and NHS focused. And today's older population, I would contend, is about a lot more than just frailty and neediness. There's a huge number of agencies and charities doing really important work in various different aspects of getting older. Economic issues, housing and accommodation, leisure time, right through to end of life management and the whole business of planning a good death. So many agencies. I reckon a minister for the third age could bring the expertise of all those agencies to bear on producing a completely well thought out, fresh approach, a new approach, coordinated, positive, proactive and humane. Simply not dying seems to have become a principal goal this last 18 months. But none of us wants to prolong our life if there's nothing but misery and bleak loneliness at the end of it. As a civilised society, we are worth more than that. It's not a matter of spending more money necessarily either. Being humane doesn't cost money. It's our attitudes we need to scrutinise. And attitudes are something that all of us in this room can help to change. We each have a voice, we have influence, we can make our voice heard and we should. Thank you, sir. That's great. Thank you. <coughs> Shibley, let's hear from you next. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Shibi Raman, and in fact, my brother says I'm a member of the Royal College of Physicians. That is actually a coincidence because my role is as a uh, family carer 24-7. And um, I live with my mum. She has advanced dementia now, and these issues are very real to me. I was brought in. Uh, at the relatively last minute, but I'm honoured to be here. And please uh, bear with me. These are some very personal thoughts on uh, where we might uh, go. And um, I'll start with the WHO definition of 2019, that a society is measured by how it cares for its older citizens. Now, in fact, older citizens marginally better than the elderly, which is a lesser homogeneous group above a certain age, bit meaningless like females or males. Or as um, asked a um, uh, former uh, president of the British Geriatric Society, what does he think or she think? And well. They're hardly forgotten, he or she said, because we look after them in hospital 80 hours a week. And uh, so as far as he's going to, has never had it so good looking after the elderly. And um, 
and social care workers are uh, equally uh, hard-pressed, most of them actually battling the intensity of care, which does cost money in addition to gratitude and politeness and good manners. Actual person care does uh, need to attract good staff, and here's the problem. We need to put where our money where our mouth is and recognise that people are gifted, look after relatively uh, vulnerable people in our society. There were some issues that sprung to mind. Lockdown, like rights in general, had two opposing, I'm going to avoid binary viewpoints, as we know, uh, we're trying to present ideas in a relatively open manner without forcing things into pigeonholes. But lockdown was a one end which was argued to encourage protection and and stop, um, protect granny and all the rest of it. The other issue, of course, was loneliness and lack of social connectivity. And this is a big problem since belonging community. And in fact, this may seem perhaps trivial, but it's not. It can increase risk of mental illness and suicidality. And uh, um, coupled on top of that, the media issue, uh, of course, uh, my late father said, a bad workman blames the floor. So I don't want to head into blaming the media. But the media uh, have some function in our perception, framing the debate. For example, in France, you may know that they took a policy decision not to publish the mortality statistics from CAOMS, uh, which is quite uh, ugly sinister. Now, uh, I did as far as I got to a master of law, but I'm not a lawyer, I said that. Uh, but um, in terms of rights, I think everyone thinks they know what a right is, but actually, in terms of jurisprudence, it's very hard to define. Um, uh, one of my many worlds is an only research fellow in UCL, and there used to be a professor at UCL called Ronald Dworkin, who talked about rights as trumps. In other words, rights that gave you a special privilege to do something. But before he died, he published a very important work um, um, drawing attention to individual rights compared to rights of society and the organisation. But I'm not a lawyer, and I'm going to stay off that subject. I would like to, the reason I'm here, of course, is uh, you think I'm oh, going to get him off. But the reason I'm here is Jenny Morrison and Dan Mayhew uh, uh, launched Rights for Residence September 2020. I'm lucky in that I see my mum every day and uh, in fact, I need to see my mum today because she sometimes forgets who I am. Sometimes she thinks I'm Jeremy Corbyn, which even, <laughs> even uh, with, for me is a compliment of sorts, but I don't look like Jeremy Corbyn. And I just wonder if I didn't see her, how I'd feel about that. Uh, and this thing about rights, it's entirely two-way that my right, her right, her right for privacy, my right to see her, uh, and all the rest of it. Um, one of the things that got lost many years ago in the debate about dementia rights is whose rights are they, any are they anyway? Are they for people with dementia or the 
carers or even even institutions because there was a feeling that it was convenient to have family out the way and uh, I can cope with that. I wouldn't like to be framed as a visitor rather as a member of the family. Now, in fact, um, staying, moving horses very quickly before I get myself to hot water, uh, there's an on-running theme and policy called parity of steam where uh, the, apparently the NHS is on par with social care, except it's been like this for 20 years and Lord Layard and people have been talking about this for 20 years and the issue is it clearly hit a roadblock with messaging like let's protect the NHS. Now at what expense? Did this mean the scams were become incubators of COVID? That if you were ill in hospital, asymptomatic even, you could be shunted to home and nobody would have to do a test. Everything is, of course, easy with hindsight, but to protect the NHS did suggest a little bit, like there were some winners and losers in this game. Now, Can I uh, get you to finish yeah. off? Yeah. So, uh, so I'm sure there's loads to talk about, and I'd like to finish now. <laughs> but there were issues about discrimination across the board, including blanket bans for resuscitation, and of course, a mandatory vaccination of cows, which we might like to talk about a bit later on. But rice is a, a thing that goes across the whole board, including rationing care for fell people, and I hope to we discuss some of these later. Thank you very Thank much, you. that's great. Thank you. Ed, can we turn to you now? Yeah, sure. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here. There's a, it's a US paper, so the, the statistics won't necessarily translate across exactly. It's from February uh, 2020, and it says 50% of individuals aged over 60 are at risk of social isolation. Um, and I just, I just think that's important because I think that picking up on something that was just said, I mean, <coughs> the, the point is, is that there's a huge part of care, which is not about uh, wiping bottoms, feeding, combing hair. It's just the company. When 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 my grandmother was very elderly, uh, there were a couple of volunteers that would would come and read to her, and I would read to her. Um, and my dad would would visit every Sunday, and provide lunch for my grandmother. But it was that he was there. It wasn't that he was feeding her lunch, although that. That was very nice uh, for her. It was the company. Um, I think we're we're facing a problem in that um, our values have have been affected um, by the way the passage of time of philosophy and it's and it's created a different kind of culture where the if you like a foundational principle. Where that we're all equal and we're all of equal worth, no matter our abilities, our our inabilities, our talents, regardless. Um, we talk about equality a lot, but uh, you you see with with this care, this crisis in care for the elderly that that we have, um, that that in practice that's not happening. Um, I just want to mention, um, and, and, and it's very much pre-COVID, there's, there's an article from February 2019 by Giles Fraser at Unheard. Unhelpfully, it's called 
uh, why won't Remainers talk about family? Um, but it's actually about the social care crisis, as was immediately pre the COVID crisis. So it's a, it's a good one to look back at, and I recommend it. Um, but I, I wanted to go through a very brief story that, that, that relates to a friend of mine who was a newly qualified nurse in the 80s. And um, she saw that a patient of hers who'd broken her hip and had a hip replacement uh, had a, a urinary infection. She could see this from, from the catheter. So she put it on the notes that, that, that this lady should, um, I think it was in her 80s, should, should receive um, antibiotics. And she went to where she was off for a couple of days or something. And she came back and this hadn't been done. So she, you know, kicked up a, a bit of a fuss about this and said, well, hold on, this has got to be done. I think the next day, or maybe even the same day, she was <coughs> called in to see the ward sister and uh, the senior orthopedic registrar. And she was very worried when she went to the meeting. She thought, goodness, I'm, maybe I've done something wrong. You know, newly qualified, very, uh, in, in many ways, uh, inexperienced. And thought, I must have messed up somehow, goodness me. And she went in, and the, um, the senior registrar never said anything, was completely silent throughout the whole process. And the ward sister said to her, um, now about Mr. So-and-so and, and on all this thing, why, why are you making all this fuss? Why, you know, uh, you know do, just, just leave her alone. Let, let her die with dignity. Um, and, you know, her daughter doesn't want to look after her. Now, she'd spoken to the daughter. The daughter didn't feel able to look after her at home, but had actually found a care for, home for her at the end of the road, end of her street where she lived, and had spoken about this with her mother, and her mother had agreed. So she knew that this kind of character of, well, her mother doesn't really want to look out for her. But it was very chilling for her. But, of course, it was the senior registrar and the ward sister. So she had no, and she's, she's in her first year, newly qualified nurse, she has no way to appeal this. She's extremely traumatized by this and it still affects her to the, the present day um, and what happened was is that um, this urinary tract infection developed into septicemia and she died a very painful death um, and I hope that's an extreme case but that was from the 1980s and I think many people will know not, another case literally the last two weeks a, f uh, a friend of a friend her mother has been dying of cancer and um, when she was no longer able to eat or, or drink necessarily, um, quite soon after that, her drip was withdrawn. So no fluids and no nutrients. And she's just died within the last uh, week or so. And that drip was withdrawn a whole month before she died. Now, I, that recent example in the example from the 80s is, is just to, to paint a picture to say this is a very, very wide and serious problem. And I, 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 I th and, and something Sue said is that um, not dying has become, it's become about not dying. And that's not, and that can't be our approach. But also we, in the context of COVID, it seems to be that the current policy is, well, you can die of anything as long as it's not COVID. You know, and never mind that you, of course, might well die of loneliness as, as has been described. Um, I mean, there's a famous experiment on, on babies that they did um, where they were fed and kept nutrients, everything that they would need biologically healthy, but they were not allowed human physical touch. And I think they, they did it with some babies where they were allowed physical touch and other babies weren't. 
and all the babies that weren't, didn't have any human affection, touch, or anything like that, died. Even though physically, biologically, they were given all their needs. You can die of loneliness. You can die of, of, of lack of the sense that, that there's someone there who loves you. Because, I mean, that, that's at the heart of the meaning of life. Now, why I mentioned philosophy at the beginning is because what I think is often philosophical concepts and ideas get very popular and they, they kind of dissolve in, not dissolve is the wrong word, but they kind of permeate our culture without us really thinking about it. And I think that there is a kind of Benthamite utilitarianism. There's a, there's a Friedrich Hayek quote I, I read actually last night. And he, he was talking about, oh, we might say, um, well, doctors' lives are more important because they can save other lives. We might say politicians' lives are more important than others' lives. And it's a very, it's a very dangerous way of thinking because although it kind of has a surface level appeal of a kind of, well, doc doctor's life is more important because he can save other lives, it, it, it undermines the core principle, our foundational principle that all our lives are of equal value and we all need equal care. And this is particularly pertaining to the elderly because, of course, as people get older, you know, into their, into their 90s and everything, they become less in, an, in the sheer instrumentalist sense, and this is why I have a problem with concepts like meritocracy and all the rest of it, is that, the, the, and this permeates our National Health Service, is that this idea of what, well, you know, even if, I mean, that particular case, the reason it was extreme was because she'd had a hip operation and she wasn't dying. But I, I often wonder about this, yeah, the, my last point is really, I often wonder about the isolation that care homes are now enforcing um, because I, I feel that maybe unintentionally, but there is a sense at which well, actually, they'll just, they'll just shuffle off and die quicker if we keep their family away. Final point, I once suggested to a, a very well-respected and a, a left-wing writer who I very much admire, I won't name him, I said, look, what we need is, you need, if you want to visit your gran, and this was back last autumn, you take a lateral flow test in the morning, and if you're clear, you test negative, you go and visit your, your auntie, your gran, that afternoon. It's as simple as that. You know, you might wear a mask or, or something or whatever, but you, you take your test in the morning, lateral flow, you get a negative, you go and see your gran. Simple. His response was, that's a worthless idea. And that's a really, really clever, clever thinker on the left in this country. Described that idea as absolutely worthless. But that was obviously what we had to do back then. Anyway, I, I leave it there. Thank, Thank you. John. Um, morning, everyone. Uh, thank you, Hilary. So I, I had the experience a few years ago of having to look for a care home for my mother. She was in her 80s and she was suffering with dementia. And the experience I had was uh, after looking at about a dozen or so different care homes is that, broadly speaking, they fall into one of two categories. Uh, I'm going to be kind and describe that s some of them as good care homes and the others as the not-so-good care homes. But broadly speaking, the characteristics of these two different kind of care homes were, were like this. In the good care home, you'd approach it and you'd think, hmm, this looks quite appealing. Uh, it's, it's well looked after, plenty of outdoor space, which of course is very important for elderly people who may not be able to get out very much. And um, once you get into this care home, you're greeted by someone who actually makes you feel welcome, 
knows how to smile and is more than happy to show you around. And as you get shown around this good care home, you see that there's plenty of interaction between staff and residents. And they're all chatting to one another, they're all smiling and being happy, and the residents are engaged in activities. Um, or some of them are, of course, sitting on their own, uh, but others will be um, talking to one another. And you're left with the impression that if your circumstances were different, it's the sort of place where you might feel happy to live. So that's the good care home. Now, with the not-so-good care home, you'd approach it already with a sense of trepidation, because just on looking at it from the outside, it would possibly look dilapidated. Um, it would look like the kind of place where you might not have any space to, to exercise or, or get some fresh air. <coughs> And then on going into this building, you'd be lucky if you were greeted by anyone. Um, certainly be lucky if the person looked up and smiled at you. And you almost sensed that there was a reluctance to show you around, lest you should see things that they didn't really want you to see. And uh, on being shown around this not-so-good care home, you'd realise that the, the, the residents weren't looking particularly happy. They weren't engaging with one another. They certainly weren't engaging much with staff. There wasn't much happening in by way of activities. And you were left with a thoroughly depressing attitude uh, of, of thinking, well, everyone here is just looking at the clock. Either the staff, because they were, couldn't wait until their shift finished, or because of the residents who were really looking for nothing more than for bedtime to come. And so there you have two different sorts of care home. And when we're talking about social policy, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is what are the characteristics of a good social policy that would encourage good care homes to develop and the not so good ones to go out of business? And I would say there's three characteristics of any such social policy that we should encourage. The first and most important is that market forces have a very important role to play in this. Now, I know market forces are often uh, frowned upon these days, particularly when it comes to service provision. I don't know why that is, because the truth of the matter is that the best person to look after Granny is either Granny herself, or if she lacks the capacity to do it, her friends and more likely her family. They are people who can make informed decisions if they are able to by looking at different care homes and deciding for themselves which one is going to be preferable. That is the simple application of market forces. The other aspect of a social policy that we should encourage is the idea that looking after people and generally caring for people and being a carer is a very important aspect of society. And yet we have, over many decades now, frowned upon the notion of caring. We've seen it as something <coughs> that is not worthy of high pay, not worthy of particular respect or esteem. And hence a lot of good people, good carers, are routinely sort of churned out by the system. They do it, and then after a few years they leave and can move on to more lucrative work, simply because we don't respect them. And how often do you hear people say, well, look at the NHS and look at the care centre. It simply wouldn't be able to operate without a lot of overseas staff. Yes, that's true. But we ought to ask why that is. 
The truth of the matter is we haven't respected the sector, so we've seen it as an area for low-paid and quite often immigrant workers. And that is not the best way to provide a high standard of care. The third feature that I would draw attention to is how do you regulate this sector? Now, the important point about the operation of market forces is that that provides an important corrective. If you mitigate the effect of market forces, then you are left looking for some other form of regulation. And we have that at the moment with formalised regulation in the sense of the CQC, the Care Quality Commission, which necessarily, I'm not saying it doesn't do a good job, and I think it's important, but it necessarily, because so much responsibility is forced upon it, because of the absence of any proper market forces operating, it necessarily develops a rather tick box mentality. And you cannot make the sorts of informed decisions about what good quality care really is simply by visiting a home every sort of six or 12 months or something of that nature, as the CQC does. The other problem that we've had, because our care sector is dysfunctional, is that we have imposed upon it a very heavy-handed legal framework, which is not a framework which is focused on good quality care, which is something I'm afraid lawyers actually fail to understand, because we have forced upon this sector a framework which is related to human rights. What do human rights lawyers understand? They understand the notion of liberty. And so almost everyone who's in a care home is seen, as far as lawyers are concerned, is, are seen through this framework of liberty. And in a famous case where Lady Hale uh, gave a ruling, she of spider brooch fame, she said, a gilded cage is still a cage. In other words, she, like so many other lawyers, looked upon care homes as little better than prisons. They are nothing of that nature. Um, the truth of the matter is, if we really wanted to improve the, the, the care that we provide to elderly people, we would focus on good quality care and we would cast aside all these legalistic notions of liberty. Just very finally, on the reforms which the government has now introduced, I think we should be quite clear about this. These are reforms which are simply about protecting the inheritances of well-off people. They are about transferring resources from the poorer paid to the better off in society. And they have got absolutely nothing at all to do with improving the quality of care for the people who need it. And it's a savage indictment of our political system that the government has been able so far to get away with those proposals. Thank you. Thanks, John. Okay, so over to you. Uh, can I get people to indicate if they wish to speak? And can we get our volunteers, please, with their roving mic? Okay, my name is uh, Amanda Hunter. I'm from the campaign Unlock Care Homes, which I began with my co-founder in uh, March this year. After we found that after campaigning for almost a year, there was very little change in uh, realities in care homes around visiting. Over the last year and a half, uh, with families not going into care homes, um, they have, what has happened is there's been a plummeting in standards. Uh, there is huge abuse and neglect, and there are so many problems. I'd like to pick up on so many of the things that the Pamela panel have mentioned. Uh, Sue Cook, you mentioned hospitals. Um, 
my experience, I'll just give a brief uh, explanation of where I come from. My mother has Alzheimer's. I was living in Italy when uh, coronavirus struck, and I came over in March last year um, originally just to stay a couple of months, to blew over, see my mum, make sure she was okay, visit her, etc., etc. I'm still here. I have fought all that time to get my mum home. Uh, and this is one of the things that I feel that is really fundamental about what has happened, is there's been a huge shift in the balance of power between the state and the citizen, and especially between families and care homes and the state. And around hospitals, my mother was admitted to a hospital because she got dehydrated in her <coughs> care home. And this is, a very, this is another uh, impact of isolation. If you're like my mother who has Alzheimer's, she is bedbound, she has no capacity, all her needs have to be, um, um, what's the word, seen by the care staff. She cannot um, express her needs. So she ended up in hospital. Um, at this, when she was in the care home, I was visiting my mother seven hours a day uh, because she was becoming more and more dehydrated staff were unable to give her the drinks that she required. She had so many infections. And I was, my visiting was restricted because I complained about poor care. Um, and then my mother was evicted from that home. Uh, she ended up in hospital. And um, I begged the ward sister to let me in because I knew that my mother's life depended on me being there. She had become so dependent on me for food and fluid that I knew that in the hospital she would not fare well. Um, I was told no, infection control um, meant that I could not come in. I said, but my mother's end of life, palliative care. Now this is an issue that is really important because in the guidance it says that, and this is the nice definition of end of life, is last year of life. However, care homes and hospitals are not interpreting it in this way. They are saying last 48 hours. So I was told, my, my, your mother is not last 48 hours. She's not last days, last weeks, so you can't come in. I explained the situation, Alzheimer, bedbound, very impacted by isolation. My mum has three mantras, well, many mantras, but three of them are, I have nobody, there is no one, there is nothing. She was in that home uh, for, for a year, well, she ended up in two homes, but all this time, she has been isolated in her room with no stimulus whatsoever. And one hour visit from me, this was before the end of lockdown, uh, a week. I took a seven hour round trip to see my mum. Uh, about the hospitals, I um, wasn't allowed in until seven days. I was then called by the consultant who said, your mother is now end days, you can come in. I found my mother a very different person to the person I'd left in the hospital, in, in, the, in the nursing home. She was now like a rag doll. However, in the first 30 minutes I was there, she drank 300 mils of fluid. But when I discovered what had been happening, she had been taken off her drip. She had been taken off her antibiotics. When I questioned this, I was told, your mother is now palliative care. She cannot have antibiotics. This is invasive. I begged them and I was told, if you want her to have antibiotics, she will go on the AMBA program and therefore you will not be able to visit. Luckily, at the end of my battle, I was able to get my mum home that week. 
It was a nine-month battle to get her home. She's now home, she's putting on weight, and she's far, far better. Care at home is better, far better than care in a care home. But not all families can do that. Not everyone can look after their loved ones at home, and they need support to do that. And this is another really big problem. I think we need new models of, st uh, of care. Thank you, Rita. Um, wonderful panel, and, and really, really great points. Firstly, I think it's important we recognize that lockdown kills, and lockdown was the most unhealthy anti-human policy you could imagine. And we, we have to ensure that that cannot happen again, not just for the elderly, but for everybody in terms of not realizing that the community, that all of us know best what's best for our family, our friends and our community, allowing a third party to make those decisions and government is dangerous and will kill people. And I, I, I hope that we can get that through to many people. Secondly, I'd, I'd really like to know from the panel, how have we got to this situation exacerbated by the pandemic where we see the elderly as a pain in the ass, as a nuisance, as a problem, entirely problematized? You know, I remember a few years ago, a woman I don't know if she was a nurse. In, I think in Norwich had this wonderful campaign to open a childcare centre within an old people's home. And she had a massive fight to do it because the idea was the youngsters would be dangerous for the elderly and the elderly might be a problem for the youngsters. And actually, after five years of fighting, she did it and it was a brilliant success. You know, and people were queuing to get their kids in for childcare in an old people's home for kids that hadn't got a granny. And, uh, you know, very rare, but we need to big up those possibilities, which must be absolutely huge. So given that it's now cool and politically correct and woke to support the vulnerable and, you know, minorities and the poor, why is it we don't think of the elderly in that regard? Is that what ageism is? You know, because if it's ageism, it seems to me to be the biggest ism out there compared with any other. And on a spectrum from mild neglect to extreme cruelty, and it's a shocking thing that we're capable of. Finally, uh, to wrap up, uh, two things. John makes interesting points about market forces. To be honest, I don't care whether it's private or public. I want to ensure we can have a say and where we want to end our lives and be, or for our family. And secondly, what do the panel think about compulsory jabs for workers in care homes? Okay, thank you. Yeah, um, all these anecdotes, I have similar. I mean, that the experience of um, looking after elderly parents, I think has become, you know, the big problem of anybody probably over 60 or 70. When you've got parents who've, you know, benefited from a really healthy society and can live to their 90s and 100s and actually amazingly well, but then go into a period of steep decline. So I think there are two separate things. One is the quality of life for people who are still independent and able to act for themselves and giving them their possibility of doing that. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, there is that when people do start in their years of decline, which can be, you know, s sudden or slow. And how do you deal with that? And what, kind of, what can society do to support these people? Um, 
And I think, you know, the discussion, one of the discussions we need to have is uh, the discussion between the separation between health care and social care, because that is a completely false division. I think it's a sort of, when you um, look at somebody in decline, and, and my parents are in this situation, my, my mother recently died, my father is, you know, fading um, steadily. Um, and, you know, it's interesting to see at a point where he suddenly is seen as being in medical need, he's given all the support certainly in Surrey where he lives, it's a good system, given all the support he needs at full cost to the state. Um, and it kind of raises the burden suddenly. Suddenly you've got loads and loads of care in place if you know how to work the system, which we were good at doing. If you don't, it becomes a complete, I, I, I feel like it's a complete, must be a complete nightmare for people who don't have access to those kind of services or don't know how to access them. So I think that is, you know, a big issue we need to discuss. But I suppose the thinking about why is this happening. I, I think one of the, I think what people are saying is about utilitarianism and the utilitarian character of our, the way society tends to be operate on a very utilitarian um, basis is a real issue. But I think then also beyond that is the culture of fear that we've grown up in. Because one of the things I think, you know, what COVID has brought out is how fear has dom dominated how a lot of people act. So some elderly people have actually isolated themselves. It's not just the government isolating them. It's deeper than a government issue. It's an issue of the way um, we, th you know, where the way our culture thinks about um, the risks we face and how we deal with those risks. And I think one of the biggest challenges we face is how do we challenge that, if you like, that cultural fear? How do we <coughs> persuade people that the most, the worst thing in the world? is not getting ill, which is kind of what people are saying now around the COVID. I have conversations with people my generation, and they say, well, I just don't want to get ill. And you think, if that's going to, going to how, you how you live your life, then you know, that is, in a way, the, prop the underpinning problem, the sort of refusal to really consider the balance between uh, getting ill yourself and how we treat people who are um, much frailer than ourselves. I'll try and be as brief as possible. I totally support your idea of having a minister for the elderly, and I think it's, a, it's only a matter of time before it's done. We've had, did we have a minister for loneliness at one point, or do you still have it? Uh, some, some years ago. Scotland but has one, but... Yeah. yeah. Um, I can only say that um, the experience in care homes I've had, um, they instituted a system of visits, which I've availed myself of, that basically if you, you go into the home, you have a lateral flow test, and if all's okay, you get to visit the person. It's all booked in advance. It works quite well. So it's, it's not all bad. Um, yeah, the children's uh, centre, um, ch having children and elderly together, that particular care home I'm thinking of does have that. In fact, they're a pioneer. They've got a nursery at the back it was there beforehand and what they've done is bring the the children in and it has a very positive effect on both of them you know they get a granny you know they get surrogate grandchildren so it it, it is uh, known to work i've got some other things to say but i might co collar people individually afterwards don't okay so thank you thank you let's take one more contribution then we're going to come back to the panel a provocative question and then a philosophical question, but the provocative question is a genuine one. I'm not just trying to wind people up. If a family has the means to look after their elderly parents and they don't, instead they look to a car home to do that, is that selfish? So it's a question about our broader value system and do we need a, a change of values? <coughs>
The second question is, a, I think, a philosophical question. I thought all the panel's points come from different angles were really interested. But John, um, your three points. Um, can I ask you a question about um, the first point and then the last point? So you said we need market forces here to basically solve the problem. And then later on, you had a pop at what you call legalistic solutions. You said that that wasn't going to solve the problem. Convince me that market forces will solve the problem of how we look after our elderly. Because when I think about things like family, care, love, duty, community, those types of values, I see market forces as very empty, as very valueless, and ironically almost utilitarian instrumentalist, cold in this context, in this discussion. So convince me that I'm wrong, because I think the answer to trying to have a better approach to how we look after our elderly doesn't lie in the element of market forces. It lies in the need for a philosophical conversation about how we can perhaps arrive at a, a new and better value system. Great. Uh, do you want to start off, John? Because that's a question directly for you. Just one minute, please, each from the panel, and then we're going to come back out. So, so on the issue of market forces, uh, I, I tend to look at it like this. If, if What I mean by market forces, I'm using that as a synonym, really, for empowering family members to make decisions. Because family members are the people who are best placed to decide where granny or, or mum should live. They are the people who, who know um, what sort of environment... Uh, the first de decision to always be made, by the way, is whether or not he or she should be in a care home. And for some people it's not right, for other people it is right. Who, first of all, makes, is in the best position to make that decision, assuming granny doesn't have the capacity herself? It's got to be family members. They are the people who know that person. They are the people who have her best interests at heart. Now, there's only two ways of resolving all of these questions. You either empower the individual and empower the family, which means that you have a system which is largely based around market forces, or you don't. And if you don't, then you are handing that responsibility over to the state. And that leaves me cold. Because whenever you hand responsibility for a decision over to the state, you end up with a pilot high, sell it cheap approach. That is inevitably what is going to happen when the state is spending someone else's money. The state is going to be concerned with cheapness. It is not going to be primarily concerned with quality. Now you're quite right to talk about the importance of values, which I did, did also talk about in terms of the importance of caring. But I actually think, and if you look at all the good care homes that I was talking about earlier, you will find that they are good largely because they, they are able to, to, to recruit, train and keep good quality carers. In other words, all of their staff are instilled with the important values of, of respecting and valuing people that we need. If you go to a, it doesn't, by the way, it doesn't matter whether the home is private or, or state, most of them are private. But if you have a private care home where most of the residents are placed there by the state, I'm afraid you are going to be looking at carers who are just watching the clock, waiting until their shift finishes. Thank you. Ed. Uh, yes. Uh, firstly, just, just to say to Amanda, thank you. Um, and uh, very moving, um, the, the, the bravery and persistence of what you did. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm sure there's lots we could talk about, but I just wanted to thank you for, for sharing that very important story that you told. 
and obviously I think it's particularly important that there are those who were not in a position to do what you did and I, I, I hear stories about that uh, quite a lot um, just I just wanted to uh, ageism was mentioned uh, absolutely it's ageism that the two prevailing prejudices of our culture I think are lookism and ageism so if you're not familiar lookism is beautiful people are more valuable um, you might have noticed that in our society in the last developing over the last 30 years but ageism as well and they're actually linked because I mean we, you know old people are very beautiful to my mind but you know it, it, not the kind of beauty that we're talking about uh, in terms of lookism and that's a it's a real thing but ha in, in short answer to how did we get here it's that all, all these different philosophical traditions these political traditions that have developed over time have all undermined the fundamental values that we need to have which is human solidarity uh, and, hu and human liberty you, you can't favor one over the other you have to have those intention and we kind of have a very very surface level belief in equality I mean actually the, the way you guarantee equality is through the liberty uh, liberty and solidarity in my view and ultimate ultimately our guiding principle has to be love human love that every human person it deserves love to, deserves to be loved and you only default of, from that if you're say convicted of, of murder or you know all the rest of it our, our, found, our foundation principles we are losing we have been losing them um, I just think on the question about selfish are, are they selfish just short answer no but let's chat later about that. and just I think there's a problem with, with your, what John is saying I agree with in terms of there needs to be choice there needs to be an alternative and families need to be empowered to have that alternative whether it's bringing their elderly relative home or whether it's finding a better care home and whether how you can strengthen those care homes that are better the, the problem perhaps that I might have with, with John's view is that you get you can at the moment we have market forces and at the moment we have a powerful state and powerful private care companies it's the private care companies that are enforcing these these care rules you also with the profit motive you also get the same things that you do with the state which is the the, the desire to cut costs the desire to say well we don't want these people visiting their relatives because they're the guarantees that the care, the care is good some my friend who, who who's that nurse she said people just say oh but if I kick up a fuss will they treat my grand worse and she says no kick up a lot of a fuss because it means they'll they'll take care of her better because they know you're going to be a big pain in the ass if they don't. That's why they don't want you in the care home. That's why they don't don't want these visiting rights. Is because they have to work harder at caring, and that that's not to belittle. There must be some absolutely amazing carers who have been very heroic through this whole process. So I don't want to besmirch all carers, but obviously that is a culture that's increasingly pervading our national health service and our social care system. Thanks. Um, uh, so many excellent points. Uh, uh, thank you. I'm only going to take three of them. Uh, market forces. Uh, I don't want to annoy people. No one opinion is correct. But Tony Banner famously said, whenever I look at a cardboard box in London, I think of market forces. So there are other viewpoints. My issue with market forces is um, a confusion fact. I think potentially it can uh, be a good thing, don't block the market and things will reach an equilibrium. The problem is that uh, due to 
creative tax accounting, some of the poorest don't end up in this country and go abroad. And so, and on top of that, the lowest paid get lowest paid. Now, you can argue that they could, we should be protected more by collective bargaining, or you can argue it's a problem with immigration. I'm, I'm not going to go there. Okay, now the second point is, uh, amount is excellent point. Um, uh, I can't, uh, by the way, in general, uh, my viewpoint is not representative of either the medical regulator or the Royal College of Physicians. This is a personal point. I can't refer to individual uh, care uh, and I can't give specifics. One thing to say is that generically, uh, people with dementia uh, are at risk of a condition called delirium, which means that um, if they stop eating or drinking, get an infection, they kind of get a very acute change in uh, behavior and cognition. This is a medical emergency, and unless you have somebody spotted, uh, it does look a lot like end of life, by the way. And uh, in needs medical treatment in the hospital. So if you're going to run a skimpy workforce uh, who doesn't recognise, uh, who don't, pardon my language, don't recognise them, you're going to run into problems. Uh, thank you, Amanda, for bringing that up. I'd like to perhaps have a chat with you later, um, if I may. Uh, but it's an important generic point, nothing to do with one individual case. I worried about these... Uh, social isolation, yeah. Connectivity, yes. People in the, in the, at homes, yes. Mortality, yes. But one of the factors is actually delirium. People at home not being recognised, being severely ill and prematurely dying. Third point is how we got here. Recruitment, workforce shortages. We had 2013 Health and Social Care which actually did move things on further. But NHS England did care planning, shared decision making, none of uh, non care support, it's all slogans, no real action, uh, work in progress, uh, thumbs up, I'll leave it there. Thank you. So, well, yes, you mentioned the words medical emergency and that raised my hackles because I think a lot of the cruelty that's been done in the name of lockdown for this last 18 months has been in, under the name of this is an emergency. Uh, the whole COVID emergency law was rushed through Parliament. Nobody really had a say in it. It's, um, it's given people an excuse to be tyrannical, um, autonomous, authoritative, authoritarian, rather. And I think, Amanda, you said that you noticed that you know, there was a big shift from sort of families and individuals to the state. And I think it's been really dangerous. I think it's going to be really hard to turn it round as well. I mean, the way you were treated in hospital, it had me nearly in tears. I just think it's absolutely appalling to treat people like that. And we saw footage with people um, whose mother was in a home and, and she wasn't being looked after properly. She tried, this woman tried to get the, her out of the home to take her back to her own home where she'd be looked after. And the, she was arrested. You know. That's, That's right, yeah. yes. Um, and seeing these things, it's, um, it's, it's seeing these things that it, over the last 18 months, that has woken me from my complacency, certainly, and this is why I'm here, you know. You were going to say something, Amanda. Sorry, yes, it was about um, uh, families' rights, and um, I have lasting power of the attorney over health and welfare. It means nothing. When I was saying I want my mum to be discharged home, and I said, well, I have lasting power of attorney, they were wanting to send her to her third home in three months. Um, <laughs> 
I was told it was irrelevant. My lasting a power of attorney was irrelevant. Okay, so, we've got lots of people to speak. Can I come okay. out to the floor again? All right, can I just, I wanted yep. to address your point as well when you were saying to the panel, how have we got to this, this state? And I think it's, um, I think it's been a lot of hypocrisy as well, really along the lines of what I was saying. There's a lot of hypocrisy. It's all been for their own good. It's, you know, we, we mustn't let them meet people. The young families might want to meet their elderly people, but no, for their own good, they mustn't. And so they, they've suffered terribly. And we all know that love, the touch of a, a, a loving hand, is worth um, a million tablets. And, and um, that's, that's really how I think we, we got to that. And also you said, what do we think about compulsory jabs? And I don't think anything should be mandatory. I think it should be. So that's a short answer to that, because I know you want to get back. Great. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I think there's no exaggeration to say that we're actually facing, in huge numbers of care homes around this country, permanent lockdown, lockdown forever. Um, there, there is no end in sight to it. And that, from my own experience and from the experiences of a lot of people I've met through the Unlock Care Homes group, um, we're, not, you know, we're not talking about what happened during lockdown. We're talking about what is going to happen in the future. Um, you know, last weekend... I was supposed to, my mum lives quite a long way away in her care home, um, so I have to travel quite a long way to get there. I was supposed to go and visit her last weekend. On the Friday, the care home phoned me and said, well, we've had a few snuffles. They're in Yorkshire, East Yorkshire, so, so they talk about COVID instead of COVID. But um, we had a few snuffles and um, a few symptoms, and so we, we've done some tests, and we're going to have to wait till the test comes back. And in the meantime, there won't be any visitors allowed. So um, that's my visit cancelled, and that my 30 visit. 30-minute visit, as it would have been, um, where I have to have a, do a test before I go in, put full PPA on, sits about as far away as you are with a, um, from my mother, with somebody, the receptionist, sitting behind her, making sure that I don't get too close. Um, you know, my mother hasn't been able to touch her latest great-grandchild. You know, it's just appalling, and there's no end in sight to it, and I think that needs to be really emphasised and really publicised as much as we possibly can. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah, just on the market forces thing, I, I thought it was a very interesting point because I think the problem in some ways is that elderly people are not contributing to society and that there's this fundamental problem whereby you're expected to be contributing to society constantly under our system and that that undermines the, the uh, sense of moral equality that I think is, is absolutely right. And it, one of the things that struck me that, that is where this is expressed is in qualities, quality of life uh, years added. Uh, qual that, anyway, however it works. That's quantity adjusted life years. Quantity, thank quantity. you. Um, that's even worse. And uh, yes, I, I think that's a problem because you cannot measure the worth of a human life. And this is the problem that exists in our system is that we're forever trying to measure exactly, oh, how many... Uh, relevant life years does this person have and so therefore how valuable is their life and of course uh, if you know it's a ridiculous way of doing things so we cannot measure these things constantly and that is is the fundamental problem and it strikes me that, that one of the problems that that uh, is being registered in in the Netherlands in the minute they have uh, legislation going through to offer euthanasia to all people over 75 and that's a sort of a very uh, blatant expression of the fact that they do not value people over the age of 75. Uh, and I think that is, is fundamental to our society, and I just wonder what the panel thinks about that. It's a great discussion. Um, 
very briefly on Sue's point about minister for the third age or whatever. I mean, I don't think ministers can solve this. If, if I was going to have a minister, I'd have a minister for the study of intergenerational relationships to see not just what's happened in the past, but what's going on in the future. I guess my main point is to try and take this a bit to the future without being utopian or whatever. But it sort of stemmed partly from some of the things that uh, John said about market forces and stuff like that. Um, so. I know it's not what John was arguing or his main point, but in some ways you could say that market, genuine market forces don't actually exist in the UK as at the moment. I mean, we live in a very distorted economy. Um, part of the past couple of years, I've taken Amanda from Cambridge across to Ellesmere Port, had a lot of time to think, and I started thinking about the actual background economic and physical fabric of the UK. You know, it's clapped out houses, whatever. Again, what John said about there's good care homes and there's old and there's bad care homes. I wouldn't want to live in a good care home, you know. I know uh, in, a, in Europe, say, there's lots of uh, examples, I guess, of communities or whatever. I, I, I don't know, but to a certain extent, what I'm trying to say is the needs to, it's a bit distance from this issue about people campaigning and what's going on now, but thinking more about the future, about changing in a, changing almost the economic and physical fabric of the, U the UK, you know, it's a difficult thing to start off with, but to me, you know, you've got economics, you've got politics, and you've got um, society, those three things, but looking at it a bit from the economic side of the point of view and the future, which all connects the others, it'd be good to start thinking about, A, there's productivity to generate the actual wealth for what's going on now, but there's also the fact that, you know, we, we to a large extent, you know, UK is, is they're old houses, you know, they're not suitable for people to have people at home. You know, you're lucky if you've got a granny flat or whatever, or you can have an extension. But we need to start thinking about the actual fabric of the UK as a modern society for the, for the future. And then the things like market forces and all of the other things may come out. I know it's a bit future oriented, but I think, you know, people in here are interested in all these things, and it'd be quite good if people could start thinking about that as well, because it may clarify how we get from where we are now. To, seriously improving things in the future. Great, thank you very much. So we've got somebody at the back, yes? Hello. Um, right, a, a core point that unites a lot of what people have been saying on the panel and elsewhere is about the importance of individual agency, individual moral agency, um, the ability of old people themselves to make their own decisions and have those respected, uh, but also the ability of carers themselves to come to their own ethical judgments. I want to address something which has just barely come up, um, which is mandatory COVID vaccination for care workers, and of course it's coming in the NHS as well. Does the panel agree with me that the real impact of that is to morally cripple the carers themselves. Because essentially what, well, let's, let's take it back to essentials. Free and informed consent to medical intervention is a core principle of medical ethics. If we have, as we already have in the care sector, mandatory vaccination, mandatory COVID vaccination, which has its own, uh, issues, but also mandatory flu vaccination. If you have mandatory vaccination, what that means is that you are left 
with a workforce which is made up entirely of people who fall into one of two categories. Either they have been subjected to unethical coercion and they have knuckled under, or they have been silent as their colleagues have been subjected to unethical coercion and knuckled under. Now, both categories, I suggest to you, are morally damaged. People who fall into both of those categories are, in fact, not competent to make effective ethical judgments. Therefore, the entire care sector is staffed exclusively by those who are, I'm very sorry to say it, morally unfit to do so. And that is a direct consequence of government policy. Does the panel agree with this? Thank you. Okay. Yeah, hello. Um, I'm going to admit that many years ago I was the manager of um, care homes um, for people with mental health problems rather than the elderly. Um, they were well resourced relative to many of the old people's homes. Um, it was to do with the closure of the big psychiatric hospitals. I worked for a not-for-profit. The staff were paid well above the national, well above the minimum wage which came in during the time I was working there. And what I would say is the idea that you couldn't have outsiders coming into that care home would have been dreadful because although I was the manager there and I'm, I would say given I had a well-resourced care home, well-trained staff, I, it was a, you know, my care homes were good ones and the people in them most of the time could express themselves. But the difference, that the number of times that the staff would say, oh, we need to look at that. What would so-and-so's brother say if they came in and saw that? What would so-and-so's daughter say if they came in and saw that? So then you get, that is a constant thought. Nobody ever said to me, oh, what would the inspectors say if they came in? That was me saying, if I haven't got this paperwork done, what are the inspectors going to say? But nobody ever brought that up as a care issue, but family coming in was really important. And that was a good care home. And, and I think the, the idea that there would be people, the homes where nobody was doing that, nobody was thinking that. And, and I think then you get a culture and the culture changes. Um, if you don't have a constantly questioning culture that's when you start getting the really bad care homes. And that is separate from the, the idea of profit, because I do think that that I do think that market forces are not good. And if you if your focus is profit, which in in most places are, if your focus is profit, there is a balance between profit and care. So where profit's concerned, you are not going to use that to get good care. The other point on a pragmatic basis that I would say, outside of the situation at the moment, which is very extreme, hopefully we will go back to something else, but from a pragmatic point of view in terms of how do we make things better in care homes, I would say 
that the concept of looking at things from the outside is what's going to make it better. And in my experience, moving staff around to other care homes and experiencing the practice in the other care homes was a really good move. And I can say people don't go to other care homes, look at the practice there, and then bring back Brad practice. They're more likely to question the practice in another home because they're not invested in the same way, they haven't got the personal relationships and they're probably not gonna lose their job if they question in another home. So actually they're gonna take good practice, put it into that home, and then they're going to think and bring good practice around. So if I was looking at policy, I would be looking at a policy of trying to move staff around as part of a training process in order to level up the practice. Because I never saw people come back and bring bad practice back they would only come back and bring good practice or questioning. Great, thank you very point. much, thank you. <clears throat> we talked quite a lot about this issue on market forces and I guess one of the things I would question is that where market forces does seem to have led us is to many care homes being owned by venture capital companies who are you know, very, very profit focused and, and don't necessarily seem to be uh, at all care focused. It kind of feels to me that you know, there's room for state intervention which is not a, a kind of financial intervention but it's more about a kind of social contract intervention that says in the care homes we have an, an agreed level of pay and training that any care home that's used by the state has to provide that level of, of uh, pay and training for, it, for its staff. And that kind of feels to me that kind of, that's kind of intervention you need rather than a, a financial one. And I agree that the current settlement does seem to be entirely focused on, you know, letting uh, rich people keep their houses than about um, funding a state, a, a care sector uh, at the level that it needs to be funded. Amanda, then we're going yeah, to come back very, to the panel. Very brief. Two things. I totally agree with the lady who's just spoken. I also agree with you, Hilary. I think that uh, moving forwards, we need new models of care, though. There will always be a need for care homes. I don't think that the, the, the market is able to provide the level of care that are. Um, it's not just elderly. We, I mean, in our campaign, we've got parents of children who have been locked up. We've got wives not able to see their husbands, etc., etc. And that won't change. And I think that market forces is not the way. We need the state to take back control of social care. However, it should not be bureaucrats making the decisions. I agree with John that you know families are the best people to decide the care of their, their relatives. However, that power is not being given to families. And as I said, when your lasting power of attorney, and I'm not a unique case, is you're told it's irrelevant. And I think, you know, in the hospital, I was told that you can't go in because uh, of the Coronavirus Act allows um, each hospital trust and each care home to make their own decisions. Hmm and they will lock people out. And for the, the reasons that you were saying, they don't want ed, they don't want families in because families see bad care. Thank you. Um, when we're talking about the free market, yes, we are, you can talk about the morals of the free market, et cetera, et cetera. What I was talking about with the distortion of the free market is something that's, that's almost invisible. There is not a free market, for instance, in say building houses. And this is, you know, where you can build them, etc., and this is causing the fundamental underlying distortion where property is not seen as somewhere to live and actually depreciates. It actually gets more expensive the older and 
whatever it is. And that, to me, is the big underlying thing where even... Even even with a care home, you know, the pre- care home property, good care home property, that most of what they're spending is paying the mortgage on it. So this leads through to all of the other low pay, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So when I guess when we talk about the the market and economics, we need to bear that in mind. And the UK has got a fundamentally distorted market economy, whether you're for it or against it, and this needs to be recognised. Okay, thank you. So thank you for everybody's contributions. I'm going to come back to the panel now. Uh, two minutes from each of the panel. Uh, Sue, can we start with you? Thank you. I think one thing that might address what a lot of people have said, I know you, you said you didn't think a minister was a very good idea, and maybe the minister is a good idea, but you need some agency with authority that will... I, I just made a, a, a list very quickly, very easily, 15 different agencies and charity dealing with totally different aspects of ageing. National Care Line, Ageing Without Children, which is a big area, Campaign to Elder Loneliness, Later Life Training, and I won't read it all out. But if you brought all those agencies, which are all acting on their own, presumably funded by charities, you know, having to fundraise and spend a lot of valuable time getting the, uh, raising awareness, if you had some agency that would take over um, all those, bring to bear all those influences, and all those aspects, I think you could really do some good. And it might not be a ministry, but I think somebody at the cabinet table would be good. And somebody you can, you know, you don't need lots of money when you've got all those resources all satelliting about. Bring them under one one agency, one aegis, and, and do something positive. And I think I would just also like to say that um, Wendy mentioned fear, and I think a lot of what we've been through in the last 18 months has been because when people are frightened, they, they, bring, they fall back on rules you know, mandatory jabs, masks, social distancing, no hugging. And if you're seen doing any of those things, no hugging somebody at a funeral, you know, no, no visiting people in hospital, letting people die alone, letting, not uh, allowing people to say goodbye to their relatives at funerals, all those things, all because of fear, which kind of feed into authoritarianism and people being little tyrants or people just feeling they've got to do what they're told. Um, the thing about rules is that by definition, they lack humanity. You need nuance. We need we need people's humanity to be brought back and forget the blooming rules. Sorry, don't don't apologise. That's fine. That's great. Thank you. Last two minutes. Yeah, I think the issues for me broadly come into four four tranches: market forces and material economics, free law, for culture. Market forces, I mentioned Tony Ben about the cardboard box, because actually market failure is a problem. If a care home goes out of business, it is a problem. For doctors and nurses and care services, a problem. But to continue to care, become discontinuous, who's going to watch over the clients and patients? So. Uh, if markets markets have to run well, according to Section One Seventy Two Companies Act Two Thousand Six, uh, don't submit to give enlightened shareholder value. Have due regard to corporate uh, to society, corporate social responsibility. Of course, there's no uh, actual enforcing of this. So if you put it in a tax haven, uh, it becomes relevant. Number two, e- economics. Uh, I've addressed that. Uh, before with lower wage and other aspects of that. Free law, well, uh, the regulation isn't enough, is it? Because if you have a rules-based philosophy, uh, then you rely entirely on the rules. Mandatory jabs. Now, if you were to make it mandatory, then you could 
be vaccinated, sure, you could lose a workforce problem. Then you can have the Delta virus still variant, still handed over to somebody despite your mandatory virus. And number uh, number four, it abolishes autonomy. It goes on to curse of territory, which is a really big problem and five you think well because i've had my mandatory job i don't need to wear ppe i don't need to come right up to somebody's face sneezing so there are problems with mandatory jobs as well uh now my fourth point uh culture uh, uh fish head rots from the head down now if we've got poor leadership i'm sorry to get all um work on you if you've got poor leadership you're gonna run into problems I'll leave it there. Thank you. Ed? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I want to draw on the point about the future and the point about accountability. I think our uh, s staff member who was making uh, a contribution about, I think the, the power of the state is, is the large part of what's got us into this mess. Okay, so w w what it, where, do we, where does the accountability come from? It comes from the families. Yeah, and th and this is why the, the the whole structure, what you were talking about, the whole structure of the political economy and, and civil society is is it, it's completely broken across the Western world. Um, maybe worse in America, maybe slightly better here, but it it, it it's broken, and it's an it, and 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 that that is because we we have a lack of trust. So, and I think we this this. I think individual autonomy is really important in, in terms of uh, the compulsory vaccinations. Um, that's absolutely right. But also what's fed into our culture is individualism. And individ uh, an ultra-libertarian individualism feeds into the need for a stronger state because you don't have those civil bonds in the culture which, which regulate behavior and which, which regulate everything we do. So the accountability of course, you 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 do need you do need the state to to be there to to enable things to ensure minimum standards at work and and all the rest of it. Some of the things that Hillary was mentioned, but the ultimate ultimate arbiter in in ninety nine point nine percent of the cases has to be the family when it comes to care of other family members. And if we're looking to the future, that is the one thing we need to be resolutely focused on. Just uh, so glad you talked about grandchildren. Uh, really, what 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 is the most emblematic thing of this fear that we've got. A fear, by the way, permeated by the state, propagated by our government, permeated by the state. Um, maybe understandable at the beginning, but, but should, not, should not be the case any longer. Uh, and the life-giving experience for, for grandparents to meet with, with their grandchildren, um, particularly w when they're still children. You know, it, it really is absolutely vital and that, w that was cut off for so long and it's still being cut off. And maybe cut off for longer is just absolutely tragic. Um, again, on vaccinations, I mean, lateral flow tests, and then if you test positive, a P PCR test to, to confirm it. Why is this, if, if people aren't willing to take the vaccines for very good reasons, why isn't that happening? And uh, ju just, just, uh, very quickly, very quickly. no, I, 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 had a, I had another final point, but I can't remember what it is, so there we go. <laughs> so my view is that you either empower the individual or you take power away from the individual. And if you're taking it away from the individual, you are necessarily handing it to some other body, which is the state in one of its many different guises. 
Um, I, I don't think there's been an argument against empowering the individual. We heard from someone on, to my right that if you bring something under state control, you increase democratic accountability. Really? I mean, I just think you, you, you just have to look at the history of so many different societies to find that that is simply not the case. If you want to increase and improve standards, then it is only the individual who can drive up those standards. Now, that isn't to say that the state has no role to play, and I agree with Hillary on this point, which is that when it comes to care, the state does have a very important role to play. I touched on that when I raised the issue of immigration, which I noticed no one has has come back to. What I'm talking about there is the, is the role that the state can play in making sure that the market operates properly. And if you allow the market to uh, import a lot of labour because it's cheap, then you will have a very damaging impact on the care sector. That's the sort of responsibility that the state should assume responsibility for, and also, of course, training. Uh, and generally driving up respect that society ought to have for people in the caring sector. Now, just finally on this issue, which I think is very important, and it relates to what I'm talking about, the importance of the individual, I think that the gentleman at the back spoke very persuasively about the issue of moral autonomy and the fact that in a few weeks' time, a number of carers are going to lose their jobs because they morally object to being injected with what's called a vaccine, but which many people with good reason will, will refer to as an experimental treatment and in which no one knows of the long-term consequences. Now, whatever you think about the vaccine, we surely have to respect the right of individuals to say no. And, and it is quite wrong that people are going to be driven out of this care sector because they have said no to the vaccine. That, by the way, also demonstrates the lack of respect that society has for the people working in this sector. Because if we respected them, you would never get the state treating, um, treating doctors or medics in the same way. Um, I know it may come in actually with, with sorry, with, with the NHS now, but, but they, initially, the they, okay, they initially went for care workers because having established the precedent with yes. care workers who are not respected, it can now spread to other sectors. And I think it is fundamentally wrong that the state is assuming responsibility for coercing people to have the vaccine. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for our speakers, our Thanks again for listening to the Battlefest podcast. You can support us by subscribing, sharing and leaving us a review. Check back next week for more recordings from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021.